Morning, everyone. We are in Genesis 37 this morning, so if you've got a Bible, let's look at Genesis 37 together. We continue this morning our series in the type of Christ in the Old Testament, the types of Christ in the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, we looked at Adam, someone who sinned in the Garden of Eden and brought the curse of sin and death on the whole human race. We saw that in Christ, the last Adam, he has conquered, redeeming his people from the power of sin and death. Last week, we looked at Noah, who built an ark in order to save his household, and in Christ, all those in him are safe eternally. This morning, we're looking at the life of Joseph, someone who was wrongly accused, punished for something he didn't do, and how God sovereignly worked in his life. We don't have three. Uh, we're just going to go through the life of Joseph, and I've kind of drawn out three points to put on the screen. Um, I've learned my lesson. I've got one slide. I don't have a clicker. Can't mess anything up. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> so let's turn to... Um, actually, before we read, maybe... Um, so last week, David had a very interesting slide. He was showing that um, Noah was just 10 generations after Adam. So you had Adam. 10 generations later, you then have Noah. And you're maybe wondering where Joseph fits in in the narrative. Well, Noah's son Shem, between Shem and Abraham, there's another 10 generations. And Joseph fits in just three generations after that. You've got Abraham who had this son called Isaac. And Isaac's sons, he, he's got twins, Jacob and Esau. And Joseph, this man we're looking at this morning, he's one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. And later that would be uh, Jacob's children would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this morning we're looking at Genesis 37 together, if you've got a Bible. It's a bit of a long reading, um, but stick with me. Genesis 37, verses 1 to 36. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Clearly learned his lesson, hasn't he? He said, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you'd had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. 
Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring, bring word back to me. And he sent them off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Well, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a, a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. What can I where can I turn now? And they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We find this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his, sons, his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. I'm just going to read one other verse from Genesis 50, if that's okay. So just flick over, if you still have your Bible open. Genesis 50, verse 20. Tremendous statement. This is Joseph speaking. He said, you intended to harm me. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. <clears throat> if I were to show you a children's story with the life of Joseph in, I'm sure everyone sat here this morning could imagine what would be in that kid's storybook. There'd be a man with a beautiful coat of many colors. There'd be a man stuck down a well. There'd be a man in prison. 
And the last picture would probably, probably be Joseph as a ruler in Egypt. And those are the four things that happens in Joseph's life. He has a coat. He's stuck down a well. He's in prison. He gets out. And then he rules over Egypt. He becomes a mighty man. But sometimes in storybooks, a lot of the story of Joseph gets missed over, gets glossed over. You see, this man Joseph wasn't born into a normal home. Nor were the situations that he faced in life something that would be appropriate to put in a kid's story. Joseph was born into a very dysfunctional family. Get this. His father Jacob has two wives, which isn't that unusual at the time. He's got two wives, Leah and Rachel, but both of his wives are actually sisters. Jacob loves one wife more than the other. He loves Rachel more than Leah, even though it was Leah who had many children while Rachel was barren for many years. And in addition to Joseph having two wives, he also has two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. So there's four women in this one man's life. Not only were there four women in this one man's life, we read that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, slept with one of his father's concubines. You think that there's some things we face in Silksworth and in England, in the UK, that are strange. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes tells us. So Jacob has four women in his life. His oldest son, Reuben, sleeps with his dad's concubine. And if that wasn't dysfunctional enough for one family to contend with, Jacob has clear favorites in his sons. He loves one more than any of the others. Now, you'll remember when Jacob was, was young, Jacob and Esau, when they're younger in their life. Esau, the hunter, is favored by his dad. And Jacob is favored by his mom. Well, this favoritism kind of continues when Jacob gets older. He favors Rachel, one wife, and favors her son over the others. So much so that he gives one son, Joseph, this multicolored coat, which was to show his favor, his blessing on him. So Jacob wasn't quiet about his favoritism. He was open about it. It says in verse 3 that we've just read, in verse 4 that we've just read, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers once they saw this coat of many colors. It says in verse 3, Jacob loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Jacob is open with the fact he prefers one son over all the others. And out of this dysfunctional home, Joseph is trying to make his way. As a 17-year-old lad, we read in verse 2, he drops his brothers in it. He tells tales, bringing a bad report back to their father. And his brothers hate him. They absolutely they can't stand his guts. They can't, they can't say one good word about him. Later he makes things worse by telling them his dreams. How he's out in the field binding sheaves. And all his brother's sheaves bow down to his. Another dream where the, the sun, moon, and the eleven stars bow down to him meaning his whole family one day would bow down to him, and his brothers hate him for it. We read in verse 11 that his brothers envy him. We see the same thing with Jesus, actually, that envy. Matthew 12, 14, 
where the Pharisees envy Jesus and seek to punish him. It says in Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. The Pharisees' envy against Jesus was real as well. And this envy that Joseph's brothers have for him boils over one day when they see him from a distance. They're looking after their sheep and they see Joseph coming. They spot him from a distance and they decide to throw him down a pit, a dried up well, a dried up cistern, and they're going to leave him for dead. And then they sit down to eat. Can you think of a more callous way to deal with someone than that? They betray their brother by throwing him down a well. They leave him for dead and then they sit down to have a meal. Verse 25. Many times these brothers in their thoughts, in their attitudes, in their gossip, in their slander, they've killed Joseph many, many times in their minds and in their hearts. But this time they actually get an opportunity and it becomes a reality. Now this man Joseph wasn't perfect. He was born in sin just like every other person since Adam. But we can imagine that it was probably a bit unwise to boast to his brothers about his dreams. But he doesn't deserve to get thrown down a well. He doesn't deserve to die. In fact, the reason why Joseph was there with his brothers in the first place was that he was doing exactly what his father had asked him to do in looking for his brothers. And yet here Joseph is. He's thrown down a well. When Joseph's brothers realize there's an opportunity to make some money out of him, they get him out of the pit and sell him to some traders for 20 pieces of silver. And this man, Joseph, is taken to Egypt. He's sold into the home of one of Pharaoh's officials. He's sold into the, the house of the captain of the guard, Potiphar. And Joseph is faithful. He's diligent. He goes about his business well. He's an example. And Potiphar puts him in charge of the whole household. One day we read in chapter 39 that Potiphar's wife is in the house alone with Joseph. And we come to that part of the story where every person teaching Sunday school dreads. The story of Potiphar's wife and Joseph. Make sure the door's closed. <laughs> Potiphar's wife tries to tempt Joseph into bed with her. And Joseph runs away. She falsely accuses him of trying to sleep with her. And Joseph gets thrown into prison. His reputation in tatters. All his faithful work under Potiphar forgotten about. All that time of service looking after Potiphar's household ruined because of one accusation. Joseph, who was completely innocent on this occasion of any wrongdoing against Potiphar's wife, is condemned. He's thrown into prison and he's forgotten about. This innocent man, condemned. Does that remind you of anyone? Someone who was punished even though he did nothing wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins on his own body on the tree. The pure, spotless Lamb of God. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a Lamb without blemish and without spot. 
Jesus was completely innocent. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. This innocent Jesus became sin for us and died on our behalf. Not only was Joseph innocent of this crime, but he was also rejected by those closest to him. First, rejection by his brothers, then rejection by Potiphar's household. I'm sure it was hurtful to Joseph that Potiphar and his household forgot about him after all the good he'd done. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He fought off this temptation, and yet he was rejected by everyone. It was the same with Jesus. The people that Jesus loved rejected him. They didn't defend him. In fact, it wasn't just that they didn't defend him. They rejected him. Even Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, with oaths and curses, denied him. Can you imagine how much that hurt Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God? Here was Joseph in prison, punished and scorned, even though he did nothing wrong. And in a similar way, we read of Jesus, who was punished and scorned, even though he did nothing wrong. Rejected by the world, rejected by his disciples, rejected by his own father on the cross who couldn't look on sin. Even though Jesus resisted sin when he was tempted, yet he was still rejected on the cross as he bore our sins on his own body on the tree. This innocent man punished for our sins. Let's continue in the story of Joseph. Sometime later we read that as Joseph's in prison, the two men join him. One of these men was a chief cupbearer. He was responsible for bringing the wine to Pharaoh. The other is his chief baker, another important man. Two important men join Joseph in prison. This man, the baker, is responsible for making and bringing Pharaoh his bread. These were two men at the top of their game, important men. But for some reason, we don't know why, they've fallen out of favor with Pharaoh. And each of these men have a dream. If you want to read about their dreams, just look up Genesis 40 later and have a little read. But briefly, God gives Joseph the interpretation of these dreams. The cupbearer would get restored to his position within three days, but the baker would lose his life, get his body impaled on a pole, and the birds would eat his flesh. Such honesty from Joseph. Now, I don't want to read too much into it, looking for parallels between the life of of Joseph and the life of Jesus. But I think it's interesting in this story that, that we aren't told the names of the two men in this passage. We're only told the jobs that they did. One man's a cupbearer and the other's a baker. And within three days of their dream, they would see it fulfilled. And I think that's a picture of communion. The bread and the wine symbolizing Jesus' body which was broken and his blood which was spilled. When we take communion, we take the bread and the wine as a reminder of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. In this passage, we see an innocent Joseph being punished for sins that he didn't commit. And we see a foreshadow of the Lord's death and resurrection. 
hundreds of years before it happened. And we see this picture of communion. So later on, Pharaoh is having some troubling dreams. He can't get any of his wise men to figure out what these dreams meant. And Joseph's eventually hauled out of prison. Joseph, under God, God gives Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. He says, look, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of abundance. There's going to be seven years of plenty. But that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And the result of Joseph being able to tell Pharaoh his dreams is that Joseph is exalted to a very high position within Egypt, probably second in command. And here we have a few more pictures, parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. Joseph was 30 years old when he began ruling over Egypt. Jesus was 30 years old when his public ministry began. Joseph went from prison, from the dungeon to the throne. Jesus went from the tomb to the throne. Now all who come to Joseph will live and not die. Now all who come to Jesus will live and not die. Romans 10.13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are pictures not to make us turn to Joseph and honor him or revere him. This Old Testament history is meant to constantly make us look forward, to look to Jesus, our ultimate rescuer, our ultimate conqueror. During those seven years of plenty, Joseph stockpiles grain. He stockpiles wheat until the storehouses are overflowing in abundance. And then the famine starts. And it's okay at the start. And the famine starts. And a couple of years in, we read in Genesis 1.56, the famine is over the face of the whole earth. And one of those that come to buy grain from Joseph is Joseph's brothers from the land of Canaan. Fantastic story. Tells us that Joseph disguises himself. He speaks a different language now. He looks different. And the brothers don't recognize him. But as you know, during the story, Joseph reveals himself. And his brothers beg his forgiveness. And Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20 comes out with this incredible statement to his brothers. You intended to harm me, or literally, you meant it for evil. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph has suffered immeasurably at the hands of his brothers, yet God given the grace to say that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph saw that through his whole life, it was God's will to have him there in the country of Egypt so as to accomplish his purpose. Now, God's sovereignty means that he's never reliant on us to do anything. That's God's sovereignty in a nutshell. God is able completely to carry out his plans on his own. He doesn't need us. And yet here we see a great example of the sovereignty of God over these events using the life of Joseph. Let me run through the events of the life of Joseph to show you how God is in control. Because Joseph's brothers sold him to the Midianites, Joseph went to Egypt. Because Joseph went to Egypt, he was sold to Potiphar. Because Joseph was sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. 
Because Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape, Joseph's put in prison. Because Joseph was put in prison, he met the butler and the baker. Because he met the butler and the baker, he ends up interpreting their dream. Because he interprets their dream, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Because he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he becomes prime minister in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Because he becomes prime minister, he's able to wisely prepare for the terrible famine to come. Because he was able to prepare for the terrible famine to come, his family in Canaan didn't die. And because his family in Canaan didn't die, the line to the Messiah was not broken. His sovereignty is over all. Every piece of the jigsaw put perfectly into place, slotted in, so the Messiah would come from the line of Judah, just as God had said. You can see God's sovereign plan in all of this. He used Joseph in Egypt as a means to save his people. God had a plan that couldn't be stopped. In Joseph's life, we see God's sovereign plan unfold. And the pain and the turmoil that Joseph went through had a purpose. The pain and the turmoil that Joseph went through had a reason. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we see God's sovereign plan unfold and the pain and the turmoil that Jesus went through had a purpose and a reason to save his people from their sins. In this way, we see the strongest parallel between Joseph and Christ. As we come up to Easter, we begin to read more and more about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the pain and the suffering that Jesus went through in order to pay the price for sin. Yet in John 14, 6, a verse that nearly everyone can quote, I'm sure, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is what Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Egypt, the only way to buy grain, the only way to avoid starvation was going to one man. If you didn't go to this one man, you didn't get food and you didn't live. There was no other option. There was no other person to go to. There was no other person that had the power to grant food and grant life. Joseph could satisfy hunger, but only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy truly and forever. He's the only one that can deal with our greatest need, that of forgiveness. He's the only person that can give you eternal life. And just as only Joseph could grant life, so only Jesus can grant spiritual life and make you right with God. Sorry, I had a Chinese last night and a really dry throat. I'm sorry. <laughs> I might as well be up front about it. We've all been there. Joseph spoke the truth, but only Jesus could say these words in the truest sense. Man meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The worst act of evil didn't take place against Joseph. It took place against Jesus. Man intended to put Jesus to death, never to see him again. They hoped that that would be the end of him. Caiaphas, the priest, when the Jewish leaders were plotting to get rid of Jesus, said... You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And it's ironic because he didn't realize just how true those words were. Because the greatest act God meant for good 
didn't take place through Joseph. It took place through Jesus. The one man died so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Joseph accomplished much good in his life, but how much greater was the good Jesus accomplished? God had an intended end in Joseph's suffering, but think of the greater end that God intended through Jesus' suffering. Joseph saved many people physically by providing them with food during the famine. But Jesus saved in the way and saves in the way that truly matters, spiritually and eternally. What Joseph did, great as it was, fades in comparison to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done once and for all on the cross. If we were to go right back to the start of our story, Genesis 37, verse 2, we'd see something very strange. The story of Joseph begins like this in verse 2. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father stayed, the land of Canaan. Then it says this. This is the account of, and you would expect it to say Joseph. It doesn't. It says, this is the account of, of Jacob. It's strange because for the next 15 chapters, most of them are about Joseph. They're not about Jacob. Strange, isn't it? You see, this isn't, jo this isn't Joseph's story. The point of this story is that God's people, the Israelites, are rescued. <laughs> Sorry. If you were to trace the line of Jesus and his heritage, you would notice that Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandfather wasn't Joseph. Joseph didn't play any part in Jesus' lineage. It was through Judah's line that Jesus was born. It was through one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, that Jesus came into this world. So the, the whole story, the point of the whole story of Joseph isn't that we see what goes on in his life. The whole point is that we see that Judah is rescued. He survives. God sovereignly works the situation so that his son Jesus is born just exactly as he planned. It wasn't about Joseph. In the same way, whether we understand it or not, everything that happens to us isn't really about us. As we face the fiery trial, testing our faith, it's easy to feel sorry and wonder, what is God doing? We've all been there. As Joseph went through his life, I'm sure he didn't understand that the suffering that he was going through was only secondarily about him. Supremely, it was about Jesus. I'm sure as Joseph suffered down that well or in prison, he didn't understand fully God's plan, but God still had a plan and a purpose even in trial and in trouble. And supremely, it was about Jesus. Perhaps we'll be able to look back as Joseph did and see the good God brought from our trial and our tribulation. If not in this side of heaven, then in the next. I'm nearly finished. Back to our statement in Genesis 50, verse 20. What Joseph said, Man meant it for evil, 
God meant it for good. Joseph doesn't try to ignore the evil. He doesn't try to romanticize about it. He just says plainly to his brothers, Look, you meant evil against me. He called it out, but he forgave it. Although this was true, it wasn't the greatest truth. The greatest truth was God meant it for good. Christian, this morning, as we face trial, we have to face them with the certainty that God is working out his purpose, that God is working out his plan and purpose in our lives. When Paul Taylor was here preaching, he uses one of the titles for his sermons, God's Got It. God's got us in the palm of his hand, just like he did Joseph. Joseph didn't have a full canon of Scripture. He didn't have the Old Testament and the New Testament in his hand. He didn't have the text of Romans 8.28. But he had the truth of it. And it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Let's trust God, even in trial. Two boys were walking down a street. And they encountered a large dog in front of them, blocking the footpath. Don't be afraid, one of the boys said to his more timid companion. Look at how the tail wags. When a dog wags his tail, it won't bite you. That might be, admitted the other. But look at that wild gleam in his eye. He looks like he wants to eat us alive. Which end of the dog are we going to believe? You may have felt like those two boys when you've had to face trial in your life. The Bible tells us to count it all joy when we endure various trials. We're assured that God is working all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. But sometimes we aren't quite convinced whether to believe the wagging tail of God's promise or whether to believe the wild evil eye of the big trial confronting us. What if we count that trial all joy and then that trial comes and bites us? Joseph was a man who had developed a godly mindset that carried him through the many trials in his life. We don't read of him complaining. He'd been badly mistreated by his own family as well as by others whom he had not wronged. He spent the better part of his 20s in an Egyptian prison, not knowing whether he would even see his dad or his family again. And yet in spite of all these trials, Joseph believed the wagging tail of God's promise instead of doubting God's plan. And Joseph could say to his brothers, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He knew that even though his brothers hated him at the time and were trying to get rid of him, behind him was a God at work sending Joseph to Egypt for God's sovereign purpose. Joseph's trust in the sovereign goodness of God carried him through these terrible trials with a joyful spirit free from complaining and bitterness. That same, tri that same mindset will help us. So Christian, this morning, as we face trial, whatever it might look like, do we consider it all joy as we face difficulty in work, in life, in health, 
Do we submit to God's plan? Are we people who trust God and His promises? Just as we conclude, let's trust God that His purpose and His plan will prevail. Let's trust God that He is a good God and that all His ways are just. Let's trust God that even when we fail to see how He can turn a situation around for good, that He has the power to do so. And let's praise the, the Lord Jesus Christ who endured the cross, the innocent Lamb of God, bore our sins so that we can have a right relationship with God. Through Joseph's brothers betraying him, Joseph not only saved the lives of numerous people in the ancient world, he testified to the power and goodness of the living God. God works his good plan even through the evil plans of evil people. So let's trust our good God who's sovereign over all. The one who was punished though he was innocent. The one who in suffering on the cross fulfilled God's plan and the only one that can save. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow before you recognizing that your way is perfect and all your ways are just. Lord, we pray for each other. It says in your word we're to pray for one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. We pray for those of our brothers and sisters that are going through fiery trials. Lord, we pray that you'd help them to trust you, that they would see in your word your goodness and your sovereignty over all things, painful as it might be. Be with us as we fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.